After having had its world premiere at the 60th Cannes Film Festival, No Country for Old Men was released in theaters nationwide on November 9, 2007. On February 24, 2008, the film ended up winning four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Not to mention that the Coen brothers became the second directing team to have won Best Director, following Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins for 1961's West Side Story. So what was the long road to Oscar nights like for No Country for Old Men? We're about to find out. Hello everyone, this is Jeffrey Kerr. Welcome to a brand new series on the Kerr Reviews podcast titled The Best Picture Backstory, where I am joined by a guest or two to discuss the history behind any previous Oscar winner for Best Picture. Today we'll be talking about 2007's No Country for Old Men. Joining me for this conversation is Josh Parham, who is a writer and podcaster for Next Best Picture. Hello, Josh. Hello. Thank you very much for having me today. Hey, no problem. It's my pleasure, and thank you for being the inaugural guest for this series. So, oh, Well, I'm honored to be here. Mm-hmm. Now on to the movie No Country for Old Men. Based on Cormac McCarthy's 2005 novel of the same name, the story takes place in West Texas in the year 1980, where welder and hunter Llewellyn Moss discovers the remains of several drug runners who have killed each other in an exchange gone violently wrong. Rather than report the discovery to the police, Moss decides to simply take the $2 million present for himself. This puts the psychotic killer Anton Trigger on his trail as he dispassionately murders nearly every rival, bystander, and even employer in his pursuit of his quarry and the money. As Moss desperately attempts to keep one step ahead, the blood from this hunt begins to flow behind him with relentlessly growing intensity as Chigar closes in. Meanwhile, the laconic Sheriff Ed Tom Bell blithely oversees the investigation even as he struggles to face the sheer enormity of the crimes he is attempting to thwart. The film was written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen and starred Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, Tommy Lee Jones, Kelly MacDonald, Woody Harrelson, Garrett Delahunt, Tess Harper, Barry Corbin, and an appearance by future Emmy nominee Stephen Rhodes. So, Josh... How did you first discover No Country for Old Men? Oh, well, I remember watching this movie way back when it first came out in 2007. That was uh, during the time early in my Oscar-watching days. I really was getting into the race and needed to see every contender. And, uh, yes, I remember watching it in theaters back then. And I think at age 17, I appreciated it, but maybe didn't quite get it all the way through, even though I was a Coen Brothers fan even back then. Uh, But now, looking back on it, I still think that it's a really impressive film and definitely one of the greatest uh, films from that year and one of the best that the Coens have ever made. I agree. In fact, how I first discovered the film, it was during the 2007-8 Oscar race. I wasn't following award season to the extent I am now, though I definitely became aware of this movie because of all of the coverage that was going on. I was only 13 going on 14 at the time. Yes, do the math, I'm almost 26 years old. So I wasn't old enough to see a lot of the nominees that were rated R, unless, of course, I was accompanied by an adult. So the first time I ever saw No Country for Old Men was when I was in high 
high school a few years later, I had rented the movie from Netflix, and at the time, I didn't really get it. But then another few years went by, and I noticed that the film was streaming on Netflix, so I decided to give it another shot. In the end, I was very glad I did, because No Country for Old Men now has to be my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of Coen Brothers films are like that, where you first see them, and you're just like, yeah, that was good, but maybe you're not totally into them, but you give them a little while, they're like slow burners, and they they eventually work their magic on you, and I find that is my experience with most of their films, and certainly was my experience with No Country for Old Men. Well, yeah, in fact, a friend of mine who shall be nameless for this podcast, he thought the first 75% of the film was great, but he thought the last 25%, specifically the ending, was a major slap in the face. (laughs) Well, I guess particularly the very end of the film is where it divides a lot of people. Yeah, he personally thought There Will Be Blood should have won, though he thinks Javier Bardem can definitely keep his Oscar, which we'll get to momentarily. What do you know of the backstory behind No Country for Old Men, the movie, or maybe even the novel? Oh, you know, I just know that it is based on the novel. I admit I have not read the Cormac McCarthy book, uh, unfortunately. I hear it's great. Uh, I just also understand that this was a fairly straightforward adaptation. My understanding is that there's scenes in this movie that are almost verbatim from how it's written in the book, which I find very interesting that even though the Coens are really gifted writers themselves, that if they know that they've got good material to work with, they'll just stick with it. From the research I've done, producer Scott Rudin bought the film rights to McCarthy's novel and suggested an adaptation to the Coen brothers, who at the time were attempting to adapt the novel to the White Sea by James Dickey. By August of 2005, the Coens agreed to write and direct the film, having identified with how it provided a sense of place and also how it played with the genre conventions. Yeah, because it definitely is basically a Western that's not set in the old Western times. Well, yeah, more of a modern-day Western, like, you know, and of course it's, the Westerns are almost a genre that almost appears to have faded nowadays, though this is definitely one of those movies that helped keep the genre alive by almost like a revisionist Western. Oh, definitely, yeah, it's... Uh, most certainly qualifies as a revisionist western and a movie that has a lot of the tropes of that genre but puts it in in a more modern day setting i mean the movie's not technically modern day it's set in 1980 i think uh but definitely has more modern trappings that have uh that you can put those genre tropes into it Mm mm-hmm i agree and I've read that uh, Joel Cohen said that the book's unconventional approach was familiar, congenial to us, yet we're naturally attracted to the subverting genre. We liked the fact that the bad guys never really meet the good guys, that McCarthy did not follow through on formula expectations. That was uh, me quoting Joel Cohen. And Ethan Cohen explains that the pitiless quality was a hallmark of the book, which has an unforgiving landscape and characters but is also about finding some kind of beauty without being sentimental. Which definitely would describe the Coen brothers. They try to avoid sentimentality wherever they can. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it does seem like material that they would be very much attracted to. The only thing that is sort of interesting that I find in the film is there's not a whole lot of their branded humor, which is usually the thing that I'm most 
subscribe to the Coen Brothers with. And, and the movie's very entertaining, but it doesn't really have that kind of streak of dark humor present throughout the film that you usually get in their movies, which I find to be a really interesting choice for them. Well, yeah, because you look at some of their more iconic films like Fargo or uh, The Big Lebowski, and, you know, they also have that quirky sense of humor. Yeah, and you don't really get that really in No Country for Old Men. I feel like there are humorous bits in them, in the film, but it is played very dark, even more dark than I think some of their other films have done in the past. <laughs> And in fact, let's talk about the casting for a bit. Like, in fact, I read that the role of Llewellyn Moss was actually originally offered to Heath Ledger, but he turned it down to spend time with his newborn daughter at the time, Matilda. Okay. I mean, I could, I could definitely see that. Um, I do think, though, that Brolin has a little bit more of an everyman quality to him. It, that just seems like a role that is so perfectly fit for an actor of that caliber to me. Well, yeah, in fact, I've also read that, well, Josh Bond was not the Coen brothers' first choice, so he enlisted the help of Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez to make an audition reel, and his agent eventually secured a meeting with the Coens, and he was given the part. Well, they have uh, some A-list directors to thank for that, then. <laughs> Especially since Brolin has gone on to work with the Coen brothers a couple times more on True Grit and Hail Caesar. He's a good collaborator for them. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've also read that Garrett Delahant, who has a smaller role in the movie as Ed Tom Bell's deputy Wendell, he actually auditioned for Llewellyn Moss five times, but he, you know, he instead was offered the other part he ended up with. Um, well, at least they gave him something. That was kind of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. And as for the role of Anton, Javier Bardem nearly withdrew from the role due to issues with scheduling, and Mark Strong was put on standby to take over, but scheduling issues were resolved, and Bardem was able to take on the role, which I'm glad that happened, because, man, what a performance. Oh, yeah. That would have been very interesting, though, with Mark Strong. I don't know if they would have used the same haircut, though. <laughs> I'm so used to seeing Mark Strong as bald that yeah. to have him with that haircut would have been definitely a sight. Mm-hmm. And this was literally like the first of three consecutive years where Best Supporting Actor went to a memorable performance as a villain. It started with Javier Bardem, then it followed with Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, and then ended with Christoph Waltz in Glorious Bastards. Yeah, they certainly liked the villains in that category for a while, but, you know, you can't blame them because all of those are worthy performances to win. Oh, yeah, indeed. Now going into the award season part of things. Now, throughout award season that year, No Country for Old Men had won the Critics' Choice for Best Picture, the DGA, the SAG for Best Ensemble, the PGA, and the WGA for Best Adapted Screenplay. And, of course, many, I guess at the time, did view this as a race between No Country for Old Men and There Will Be blood but it seems going into oscar night no country for old men had the edge yeah it was pretty much no country that was going to win i do remember that race and there was a narrative of those two films kind of battling each other out they both had the same amount of nominations to going into the evening yes. but like you said no country had basically won every single major precursor the only thing that Willie blood had consistently going for it was daniel day lewis which 
that was best actor. No country really wasn't a factor in that race. So it, it was pretty clear that the Cullens were going to take this in the end. Yeah. And as you said, No Country for Old Men tied with uh, There Will Be Blood for the most nominations. No Country for Old Men had eight nominations for Best Picture, Best Director for the Coen Brothers, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, Best Adapted Screenplay for the Coen Brothers, Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, Best Film Editing for Roderick James, otherwise known as the Coen Brothers, (laughs) (laughs) and Best Sound Editing and Best Sound Mixing. So before we get into wins, do you think No Country for Old Men got all the nominations? nominations it deserved if not did it deserve more or less um i tend to think that those were the nominations that it deserved to get um i do know that there's a lot of sentiment for tommy lee jones in the film and i think that he is really good in the film and he would have been a worthy nomination but it's kind of hard to cry too hard about that because tommy jones ended up getting a surprise best actor nomination so he was even though he didn't get nominated for that movie he was still kind of covered uh-huh. Well, yeah, because Tommy Lee Jones did receive Best Supporting Actor nominations from SAG and BAFTA, yet Tommy Lee Jones at least got Best Actor nomination for In the Valley of Ella. So, hey, visibility factor, we've seen help many people in the past in terms of getting Oscar nominations and even wins. Yeah, yeah. So I, I tend to feel like No Country for All Men performed basically how I expected it to, and I think its nomination count is is pretty representative of the best achievements of that film. Yeah, I can agree. Although, Kelly McDonald did receive a Best Supporting Actress nomination at BAFTA. Yeah, she's also very good in that, in that film, too. And the Supporting Actress race that year was very strange and very unpredictable. But it, I feel like it was just a little bit hard for her to muster her way into that race. Here's a good question. If you were to nominate Josh Brolin, would you put him in lead or supporting? Hmm. Now, that's interesting, because I, now I believe that he was campaigned as lead, right? Well, I mean, I wasn't following the Oscar race back then, but I imagine he would. Especially since, well, with Tommy Lee Jones and Javier Bardem both campaigning and supporting, it would make sense to separate Brolin from those two. Yeah, my memory of the Oscar race that year was that Brolin was in lead um, during the campaign. And I feel like I can agree with that. Um, The Josh Brolin character is sort of the linchpin for the entire story. He's the reason why the other two players in the film are in motion at all. It's all because of what he's doing. And even though his time is separated between the other two characters, he really is like the driving force of what propels the story forward. And I think because of that, even though... He doesn't, you know, we don't see him all the way to the end of the movie. I feel like that would make him the leading actor of the film. Now on to the actual success of No Country for Old Men on Oscar night. It won four awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. So similar questions I asked you about the nominations. Do you think No Country for Old Men got all the wins it deserved? If not, did it deserve more or less? Uh, well... I really do like No Country for Old Men, but I have to admit that it is not my favorite film of 2007. I am one of the people that did really like There Will Be Blood. So for me, if it was up to my personal preference, I would say that There Will Be Blood should have gotten mentions for a picture and director because I'm also a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Mm. So personally for me, I would have voted for that movie in those two categories. And even in Supporting Actor... 
Javier Bardem is really good, but I'm also a really big fan of another movie that came out that year, which was The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Long title, I know. <laughs> uh, but Casey Affleck in that movie, I think, is also really, really good. He's not a supporting actor, I don't think, but he was nominated in that category. And of the performances there, he's also my preference. Hmm. Interesting. Now, and I actually still have not seen The Assassination of Jesse James, but I should definitely get around to that eventually. And I believe uh, Roger Deakins also shot that movie as well. Yep, and was nominated for that also. He was double nominated that year. And, of course, he ended up splitting his support, losing out to Robert Elswit for There Will Be Blood. Well, then again, the names aren't even on the ballots and below the line categories, so. That, that is true. Um, but, you know, speaking of still with the Oscars, uh, No Country for Old Men, I am in support of it winning for adapted screenplay. I think of that field, I do like that screenplay the most out of the group. I think that's a very deserving win for, for the film. And I actually also think that the editing and the sound work is really good, too. I actually prefer that. I would have preferred that to win the Oscar over the Born Ultimatum, which won uh, those Oscars. I think that No Country is actually the better achievement. Well, yeah. In fact, if that race was taking place today, we'd be seeing No Country for Old Men have the edge because it's the Best Picture nominee, which Born Ultimatum was not. I mean, that's true. I, it'd be interesting to know maybe if Born Ultimatum could have squeaked into Best Picture. But, you know, you don't know because it did win three Oscars. Well, yes, including editing, which is big. And, well, then again, also didn't have any major above-the-line categories. I mean, maybe in an expanded lineup, possibly. Yeah, that, that's true. But I really do feel like No Country Roll Man has... Some really great sound work to it, especially. You know, it's not overbearing. It's not a big action movie like The Born Ultimatum is. But in terms of how quiet and subtle it is and just putting you in that environment with these characters, I think it is exceptionally well done. And I would say the same thing for the actual editing of the film, too, the film editing. I think it's more work that's not very flashy but is so appropriate to the movie that it's attached to. And I think it is really incredible work. Mm. And as for me, well, I, I think I agree with you that Snow Country for Old Men got the eight nominations it deserved. As for wins, of course, me having not seen Assassination of Jesse James, well, I mean, even if I have seen it, I don't know how if my opinion will change. But I'll say for right now, I think Javier Bardem not only deserved the Best Supporting Actor win, but I, I thought that's definitely one of the great Supporting Actor wins of the 2000s. Oh, yeah, I have no problem with Javier Bardem winning. I totally understand it. It's a great performance, and it definitely is a worthy performance to win an Oscar. It's just, for me, there's another movie and another performance that I just respond to just a little bit more. But I have no issue whatsoever with Bardem winning. Well, yeah, I guess you can say a great performance won over another great performance. Exactly. And you could also say that a great supporting performance one over another one that was probably category frauded well yeah even though we have seen some performances overcome that like alicia vikander timothy hudson tatum o'neill oh yeah there's been far more egregious categories or instances of category fraud actually winning but this was one in which an actual supporting actor managed to win mm-hmm. yes i agree in fact, uh, let me look up uh, the Oscar nominees that year. Okay, I so far I've seen about three of the 
nominees for adapted screenplay, which were Atonement, There Will Be Blood, and the eventual winner, No Country for Old Men. And now I have not read the Cormac McCarthy novel, so I can't uh, comment on the adaptation, but... You know, and I'm also not familiar with the source material behind There Will Be Blood, but I know that Paul Thomas Anderson really did a loose adaptation of that story, Oil. Yeah, There Will Be Blood is, like, faithful to that uh, original story in, like, name only. It's a very, very loose adaptation, as you said. And I love There Will Be Blood, but I think that it is more of a directing piece than it is a writing piece, so... I feel like if you're, especially comparing those two movies in terms of writing, I feel like No Country for Old Men is the stronger achievement. Do you think if the race was taking place today, would we see a kind of a split where Paul Thomas Anderson wins director for There Will Be Blood, yet the Coen brothers wins adapted screenplay for No Country for Old Men? That's very possible because, um, I mean, the Coens had already had an Oscar at that point. They didn't have a Best Picture. So it's interesting to think about if their narrative would have just like stayed in a writing and picture category, but Paul Thomas Anderson would have had his own narrative for director. It, you know, Oscar races are kind of different than they were back then. Which, yeah. You know, even even in just 2007, the way that the Oscar race unfolds is drastically different. Right now. Of course, Paul Thomas Anderson does have a short film on Netflix, so we'll see if that helps get him an Oscar this year. Hey, I will always rally for whatever opportunity it presents itself for him. <laughs> okay, on to the sound categories. Okay, the nominees for sound editing were Born Ultimatum, which won, No Country for Old Men, Ratatouille, There Will Be Blood, and Transformers. And I've not seen any of the Born movies, so I also haven't seen Ultimatum, but I have seen the rest of the nominees. I guess if I had to pick a winner in that category, well, I definitely would not give a Michael Bay movie an Oscar. <laughs> Although the sound work in Transformers is good. The movie's not that great, but well, yeah. just recognizing the sound work is okay, well, I think. Oh, yeah, because the award isn't best sound editing in a good movie. It's best sound editing in general. So, yeah, yeah. I can de- definitely agree with the nominations. I guess, again, it, to me, come down between No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood. They pretty much be duking it out among multiple categories. Yeah, and I know that you said that you haven't seen the Bourne movies, but those are obviously films that, they're action movies, there's a lot of yeah. you know, cars and gunfights and a lot of different sound effects going on, so I understand why it won, and it is a worthy winner. There's a lot of work that went into making the, the sound effects for that film, but I think, again, it, to me, it's sort of one of those quality over quantity um, arguments for me where I feel like in No Country, the sound effects that are used are very specific and tailored to giving you a sense of atmosphere for that film. And as Tom O'Neill, who's my boss at Gold Derby, he often says that in order to win, you got to have the most of something. Like, the loudest movie wins the sound categories. Yeah, and the board are certainly that. <laughs> yeah, especially when you have a huge amount of Academy members, most of whom are not in the sound branch, so if the winners in the sound categories were only voted on by those in the sound branch, we'd definitely be getting different winners. Yeah, well, uh, No Country for Old Men did win, I think, um, the Cinema Audio Society, the Sound Mixers Guild Award. I mean, that's mixing, not editing, but it did win a major sound prize, but that was done by people that are actually working in that field. 
Yeah. You know, I come to think of it, I think I would give No Country for Old Men sound editing and sound mixing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that the work on that film is really spectacular and very, very underrated. Mm-hmm. As for film editing, of course, I've only seen the two, No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood. I have not seen the others, such as Into the Wild, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and Porn Ultimatum. And you'd still give No Country for Old Men editing? Yeah, I, I would. And I think, again, there's a lot of, of editing. You know, going back to the argument, it's always the most of something, and the Porn Ultimatum definitely is the most edited film out yeah. of that group, but... I also feel like the editing in No Country is a lot more deliberate with its choices, and I find it to just, the pacing of that movie is very uh, specific in the way that it wants to keep going and keep up a certain momentum, and I feel like the editing does a lot of work to that effect. Um, the Ruby Blood has really great editing, too, so does Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Uh I have not seen Into the Wild in such a long time, so I really can't remember the editing of that film, but I'm sure it's good. Um, But of the group, I would still say No Country is my preference. Yeah, I think I would too, even though I guess the argument you can make for There Will Be Blood is that, you know, it's almost an hour longer than No Country for Old Men. Yeah, and I still find it to be a very interesting and engaging film. I know not everybody agrees with that, but... um, but just in terms of the editing, I do think No Country kind of has the edge just in terms of really making specific choices that you know play into suspense, that play into drama, that do go into a little bit of comedy when it needs to in the brief moments that it does. And I think the editing in that movie is, is really good. And it would have been cool to have them open the envelope and say the Oscar goes to Roderick James and <laughs> just cut to the Coens and like, they don't go up because they can't. <laughs> Yeah, I absolutely would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> and uh, as for best cinematography, would you have still given it to There Will Be Blood? Ooh, well, first of all, I have to say that this is probably one of the strongest lineups for cinematography that the Oscars has ever had. I don't think that there's a bad uh, nominee in this bunch. I think they're all fantastic. And as much as I do love the cinematography in There Will Be Blood, I do think I have to go with Assassination of Jesse James, which to me is the best shot movie that Roger Deakins has done. Okay, so overall you would have given No Country for Old Men wins in adapted screenplay, film editing, sound editing, and sound mixing? Yeah, that's where I think it should have won for me personally. Okay. I think I probably would have given No Country for Old Men every single award it was nominated in, with the exception of cinematography, which I'll let There Will Be Blood keep that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with that. I think No Country for Old Men is certainly a crowning achievement of the year. It's an excellent film and deserves a lot of attention and definitely deserved to win Best Picture. I agree with that. So I think that just about does it for our discussion on No Country for Old Men. So thank you for joining me, Josh. Oh, thank you. I always will get a kick out of uh, talking about movies, especially uh, old Oscar races. It's always fun. Yes. So for those who'd like to keep up with your work, where can they find you on the Internet? Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter uh, at JR Parm, and you can also find uh, a lot of my 
writing and podcast work over on Next Best Picture. So I hope you'll all go and check out the great team that we have over there. Oh, yes. In fact, I may also have several other Next Best Picture contributors join me in the future. So I guess keep your ears out for that. Yeah, I certainly will. <laughs> okay, so thanks again, Josh. Oh, well, thank you. If you like what you've heard here, please subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. Feel free to rate and or review this show on iTunes. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.com. You can also find it on Twitter at Care Reviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all later.